Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Oh, no, no. I need to talk to my lawyer first before I click. <laughs> all, right, okay. uh, all right, hold on. My lawyer says it's okay. All right, good. Okay. Okay, good. Do I have to sign an NDA or anything? Yes, I want you. Yes, because then okay. I have to listen to the final episode and approve. Just kidding. Yes, of course. One of my oldest Twitter friends from way back in the fail whale days, I am so pleased to be joined today by the wonderfully witty Scott Weinberg, a prolific film writer for 20 years, as well as a jack of all trades. Scott Weinberg has created such wonderful podcasts as the new Overhated, which you can find on his Patreon, Weinberg Plus, as well as co-created 80s All Over and more. Additionally, he's produced a few indie films, narrated audiobooks, and you can find his byline everywhere. A fan of cats, you'll find many adorable moments of kitty zen on his Twitter. And a huge horror and comedy buff. Scott, I'm thrilled to have you here today. How are you doing and how's Ball treating you? I am so happy. Thank you for the invite, Jen. I was so happy to have you as the inaugural guest on the first episode of Overhated. You are such an upbeat, positive, welcome uh, presence on my Twitter feed. Uh, I just adore the way you approach film. I love the way you write. I've listened to a few episodes here and there, and I think you're a natural. I think you are um, really good at articulating why film means so much to you and why it should mean more to other people. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That's way too kind. But I've been loving Overhated and I did have so much fun chatting about Catwoman with you and yeah. I'm totally eager to come back. So Scott, you've been so insanely prolific with your podcast. You're putting us all to shame. How many episodes have you done and can you give us a sneak preview of what you have planned for the future? Oh, wow. What a great question. I have done 35 episodes. I just published last wow. night a patron episode with me and Stephen D'Souza, the writer of Hudson Hawk. Oh, my gosh. Hudson Hawk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you. Twitter has been so great because I've been able to reach out to filmmakers I really admire. And of course, friends and critics and podcasters. Um, but, you know, screenwriters and especially guys like Stephen D'Souza, they're busy. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm just elated to be able to mix in like normal Joe podcasters and film buffs with filmmakers like Steven. And it was a massive episode. We talked for about three hours. I got it down to about an hour, 10, because nah, maybe two hours. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was it was great. I have another episode coming up with my good friend, Liam O'Donnell. He directed uh, the two Skyline sequels, and I'm having him on to discuss the uh, the original Skyline. Um, what else do I have in the can? Oh, Star Trek the Motion Picture with our mutual Ooh. friend. Yeah, with our mutual friend Alan Cerny. Okay. Um, and uh, then I'm gonna be getting some more in the I'm gonna do some more recording. That is so cool. Oh my gosh, Steven D'Souza it's just a topic. is great. I love it. Yes. I love it's a topic I just love. It is, I mean, if you find a niche that you really enjoy, you know, those yeah. two crazy kooks, uh, Eric and Scott made a great podcast about Stephen King books. Uh, yeah. you you have a great podcast about just your obsessions, your love of film in general. Um, you know, some people do comedy. Some, you know, I just, I love the idea of discussing films that have been dismissed as trashed, not yeah. trash, not, not, not trash as in noun, but trashed as in uh, verb past tense. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like everybody knows the punchline is Ishtar, but like, mm -hmm. let's talk about Ishtar. 
You know, yeah. like it is not that bad of a film. And there are lots no, of reasons. It isn't. <laughs> there are a lot, yeah, there are lots of reasons that that movie got trashed. Um, some of them having to do with Hollywood being cruel. Some of them with, having to do with basic misogyny. Uh, mm-hmm. There are, I mean, I'm not saying Ishtar is a great film, but I, there are lots of reasons that it came to the theater pre-trashed. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's one thing I love about this, especially because you're doing something you're passionate about. And when someone is passionate, no matter what the subject is, it's just so great to listen to because then you learn things and you get kind of caught up in their passions and never stop learning. And I love that about your podcast. Oh, thanks. That's how I feel about your Twitter feed. Oh, well, thank you. I, I'm not joking. There are times where I'll just be like scanning by and people are like, Marvel this and uh, Dune that. And then I'll see, leave her to heaven. What? what? <laughs> Jen's posting four images from Laura, which is one of my all time, probably my favorite film from the 40s. And yes. uh, people like you and Karina Longworth and, you know, lots of others kind of like remind me, yo, don't ignore classic cinema. Don't just focus on the last 25 years. It's really mm-hmm. easy. It's really easy to fall into that trap of let's just talk about Marvel and Star Wars and recent action films. But, you know, people like you remind me, yo, oh, spend some time on the older films, too. You know, like, yes, I'm I, so I, glad I, you mentioned Karina Longworth because I'm talking to her next week for the first time on the show. So I'm very excited. She's a titan. <laughs> She, I would love to have yes. her on an episode of Overhated. She's a an old friend of mine, an old boss of mine. She gave I me, know she was your editor, me, right? Yep. She gave me a leg up when no, no other sites would because I don't know why, but uh, I, I owe a lot of my professional career to Karina Longworth. Oh. So uh, uh, she is a uh, a great, uh, her podcast, you must remember this, is phenomenal. Amazing. Yes. As far as like um, golden era Hollywood and not through like a puff piece lens. She's a real journalist, a real uh, historian. She really digs through to get the facts. And, uh, you know, to people like us who've only learned about the golden age of Hollywood from movies and, you know, approved sources. You know, yeah, that's true. Uh, hearing her dig through the actual history is just phenomenal. You must remember this, people. Great. Yeah, it is phenomenal. One thing you are synonymous with, especially with your ubiquitous avatar from Alien that friends like me who followed you for years immediately see now and think of you, is uh, horror movies. And one of my favorite stories you told that I've always remembered is what Roger Ebert said to you about it. Would you like to tell it here, the story about you being a horror fan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've met Roger Ebert once and it mm-hmm. was thanks to, um, a local critic friend of mine named James Barnelli, who I became friendly with at local screenings. And, um, he knew Roger pretty well. And, uh, he said, as we were leaving a screening at Toronto film festival, he said, I'm going to go walk Roger back to his hotel. Do you want to meet him? And I said, <laughs> I, 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 yes. So we're walking along the main road there in Toronto. I think it's Bloor. I forget. And, um, we leave the theater, we make a left, we're heading down towards the hotels and we're talking here and there about, oh, you know, I, I want to be a real, uh, an established critic, but it's a, it's a tough field now. There's a lot of people in the pool and I'm mainly a horror guy and people kind of dismiss that. Um, and Roger Ebert basically said, nothing wrong with being a horror guy. Yeah. And I used that for my Xbox name for like 10 years. <laughs> the yeah, horror horror guy. guy. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being a horror guy. As long as you, you know, he was just full of great practical advice. Just, you know, um, and I know the guy didn't love horror movies, generally speaking, but yeah. um, it, it was really flattering that he both 
knew who I was, which blew my mind. Yeah. And, and that he just, you know, he was never pretentious or snooty. Uh, you would think a guy like Roger Ebert could probably you know, like get away with being kind of a, you know, yeah. Uh, pompous a little bit you know dismissive or a little bit special fancy nope yeah or over it because he's been yeah. around the block so long right yeah. and he was he was a completely gracious and friendly and sweet and i was so grateful that i got to meet him and on it was just a minor five minute conversation but it it meant a lot to me oh i always love that story and it's true you are a horror guy but you're also a diverse film lover and you champion a wide array in your work but for now, and because Halloween is coming up, you've selected mm-hmm. horror remakes for today's theme. And I had a ball tracking down both the originals as well as their remakes because it's not a genre I know super well. I'd actually only seen three of the films in total. And that mm. was the excellent original and remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and also the original Blob with Steve McQueen, who is probably the reason I watched it when I was a kid. I'd seen clips of the remake of The Blob as well as David Cronenberg's version of The Fly and John Carpenter's The Thing. But the films in total, as well as the originals and both versions of Dawn of the Dead, were completely new to me. Oh, my God. That means so much to me. I know. It really makes me happy because I will guarantee, for example, that even if you're slightly squeamish, which I'm guessing you are, I bet you loved Carpenter's The Thing. I bet you loved it. I liked it very much. Uh, we'll <laughs> okay. get there. Yes. But yeah, I the films that you said to me, what, what five horror remakes do you, because I, I think I was in the middle of a rant about how, yes, most horror remakes are not good or they're plain old bad, but mm-hmm. I'm not ready to throw out the baby and the bathwater oh, no when way. you get remakes like, and you, you basically wanted to know, what do you consider like five of the best remakes? Yeah. And so what I said to you was Invasion of Body Snatcher 78, which I adore, the mm-hmm. Thing, 82, of course. The Fly, yes. 86. The Blob, 88. And Dawn of the Dead, 04. And, and I don't want to interrupt your itinerary, but of those five remakes, I just want to know before we get into them, which one did you like the best? Oh, of the remakes? Yep. Um, Might be, it's a tie probably between Body Snatchers and The Fly, perhaps. Okay, because this, this episode to me is much more interesting to hear your opinion. Oh, I've been, you're I've been a uh-huh, no, no. Here's why I've been a horror fan my entire life. So hearing me talk about the thing, you're going to hear the same kind of stuff you hear from 25 different horror geeks. You are just a film lover, uh, not, <laughs> not, not not in particular to any one devoted genre. So me talking to you about a the new version of the thing versus the older version of the thing as a newcomer is much more interesting. Mm-hmm. To me, oh. to my, to my opinion, anyway. <laughs> to your opinion, yeah. I don't know if the listeners are going to agree with you, but I love you for that. I but think they would. But let's as go. As long as we're talking <laughs> horror, though, and that is your genre, <clears throat> do you remember your first, or at least your first favorite horror movie that you saw oh, it's, or loved? Yeah, you already mentioned it. It's Alien. It's, that was um, the first. Oh, yeah. cool. That is great. Well, before we begin, we should probably warn those listening. That when it comes to today's movies, and again, they include, just for everyone's knowledge, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing, The Fly, The Blob, and Dawn of the Dead, that there may indeed be spoilers ahead, especially because what 
you may call a spoiler might differ from someone else. So if you haven't seen these movies, you might want to proceed with caution. But kicking things off, we have another entry in one of my favorite 70s subgenres. I'm calling Donald Sutherland Freaks the Fuck Out. It is the right stuff and the unbearable lightness of being director Philip Kaufman's slow burn horror remake of the 1956 Don Siegel movie based on Jack Finney's novel, The Body Snatchers. In 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, director Kaufman and scripter W.D. Richter update the noirish allegory of conformity and the McCarthy era of the 1950s to contemporary San Francisco, where a health code inspector, a scientist, a mud bath owner, and a writer all start to come to the same eerie realization that the people around them have all turned into unrecognizably passive, emotionless pod people. And no one, including the authorities or Leonard Nimoy's sinister pop psychologist, self-help guru, seems to believe them. Starring, in addition to Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy, Brooke Adams, Veronica Cartwright, and Jeff Goldblum, this one takes longer than the far more efficiently paced 80-minute movie to play out, but it gradually builds a sense of creeping dread and still works very, very well. I think both pictures, so stylistically different, are excellent, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, you touched on the Red Scare issue of, of you know, the Body Snatchers as an allegory for whatever oh, yeah. uh, we, we happen to be afraid of in that era. <laughs> and, you know, And I think what's funny about the 78 version is that what it's targeting is this amorphous but very omnipresent kind of self-help movement that was mm-hmm. very common in the late 70s. Yes. And it was like S and I was you know six, seven years old at this time. So I, I this is all just me reading from history. Mm-hmm. Um and it's kind of more of a not as much of a cautionary tale, which is I, I think the Siegel film is you better stop because we're all, you don't conform. <laughs> this is this is what's gonna happen. Yes. And exactly. I think that Kaufman is a bit more, we, you already have, this is us. We're conformed. Like yep. this, this is, this is what we are. And I think it's very dark and creepy, but I think the 78 has more of a cockeyed sense of humor about it. It does. Than the 56. And, and I, I, I agree with you that they're both fantastic, but there's something about the 78 movie that feels like I could watch it in 15 minutes. It feels like a compact. It does take a little while to get rolling, but it just feels like, a, a fast-paced four-character ensemble piece that just once it it gives you the mystery for a good 20, 25 minutes. And then once the mystery is solved, it just never stops. It, it keeps moving. It keeps getting interesting. It keeps getting creepy. It gets very sad. Um yeah. and I just think it's a it's a beautiful, dark horror film. It is. It's very beautiful to touch on just the visuals. I mean, it was shot by Michael Chapman who, you know, shot like Taxi Driver, The Last Detail, uh, Raging Bull, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, you know, a bunch of those. He also shot Scrooge, these really dark films, but they're shadowy. Like he was able to kind of incorporate the noir aspect of the sequel version, but do it in color. And I think that's part of what makes it so exciting to look at. Like there's like a third man kind of thing where Sutherland is running at night and we see the shadow and it's very cool. I love that. And I guess um, I just learned that this morning, actually, that Ben Burt was the sound design. I mean, this yeah. movie, the technical specs are amazing. 
And I also like that it's subtle. You'll find in today's episode, I don't do super well with like gross out or extremely, I'm a little squeamish on some of that stuff. So I do like that aspect. Like I can handle this one. And yeah. so, yes, this is a really great film. I've it, seen it's it before. It's really pushing it. It's pushing yes. it though. It, it ha- it, it's a PG. Uh, I know. I can't and, and, I mean, a late, se- a late 70s PG is kind of a light R, frankly. Let's be it honest. It is. Yes. Uh, uh, the movie cost uh, $33.5 million and made 24 in North America alone. That's was insane. Yeah, it was a big hit. And it did a lot. I, I know you mentioned Veronica Cartwright, but I had just have to throw in my lifelong love for Veronica Cartwright. Between She's so good. She is the best actress I've ever seen in horror. Forget that she started on The Birds. Just focus on Alien and this. She is so vulnerable and so... Yes amazing at playing pure fright there's no reservation from her you mm-hmm. get pure fear and she's also amazing in witches of eastwick love veronica cartwright yes so good and i love the ending the way it plays out with her in the scene i read that it's possible that she didn't even know uh what was going to happen with the big reveal with um you know sutherland and i thought that was interesting i also like that a lot of these movies, especially this and The Thing, are pretty nihilistic films when you get down to it at the end. And this one was just so eerie. And you feel like since you were identifying with especially the Sutherland character, it's just such a you know kick in the ass in the end. So it was really good. It is a gut punch of an ending. Yes. <laughs> because you think it's uh, a, you know, a relatively happy ending. And yeah. boy, is it is it not. And not only is it not a happy ending, it's an iconic, horrifying Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> that face that Sutherland makes and the way it's shot and the way it zooms in on his mouth. Oh, it's just wonderful. And the irony is the original story by Jack Finney has kind of a happy ending. They basically just leave. That is so <laughs> funny. I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. And you've got that Sutherland face and the scream. And it just brought back uh, Don't Look Now. And, some of and you know what used ones. to horrify yeah. me as a kid is when he leaves her when he leaves Brooke Adams for just a few moments to go yes. check the facility and then he comes back and he picks her up and she falls apart in his arms that to me was as scary as anything in the exorcist jaws texas chainsaw anything. oh yeah because it's just like you can imagine that you god forbid yes. you can imagine like hoping saying so picking someone up and they they wither away in your arms it's terrifying it is uh, and it's tragic, a, you know. Yes, uh, it's emotionally devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, you know, I like that it has a consistently dark tone and ends on a dark hook. Yeah. I, I generally like happy endings, but for this movie, no, this ending is wonderful. And 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 I'm sure you appreciated the little uh Easter eggs uh to the original. Oh yeah, there were some fun callbacks. There's Kevin yes. McCarthy running through the streets screaming, they're coming, they're coming. And of course. <laughs> He played the lead in the year 1956 and Don Siegel plays a taxi driver. So there, there's a little, another connection to the first film. Um, but yeah, I just, I love it. I could not write the Danny boy sequence. It gives me chills. It really does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can't recommend it enough either. I do think people listening, if you haven't seen the original, you should really check it out. It's a different way to tell the story but it's really good. It's also, I think, unintentionally funny in places because uh, the main character 
is the most he's the horniest character basically in a horror yeah. movie in the 1950s like we just saw pod people but no i'm just gonna come on to women or the woman that he's into and like nothing can lessen this guy's libido no matter how many pod people that he meets or encounters yeah so it's kind of amusing in that sense too yeah and uh, i love the costumes in the original i, I just recently listened to a, a podcast that i love called book versus movie uh oh yeah Two women named Margot cover b- movies versus books, and they just cover this and they, they comment on her outfit. <laughs> She's wearing like a like a, a fancy dinner dress throughout the entire yes. film, and it's like in the fifties. Yeah, and heels in this era. Did they not? Couldn't they just give a woman a jumpsuit? She's not going to a dance, people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is was, so true. It yes. just seems like there was a certain era where if a woman was doing casual or physical things in a movie, they didn't know how to dress her. She always yeah. had to dress like a housewife. <laughs> I know. Yes. They can't I mean, uh, be, the uh, stereotypical housewife. Not a, I know. Not, not it can't housewife. all be like Laura on yep. uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. She got pants, but, you know, Mary Tyler Moore had to fight for those. But yes. <laughs> So next, we're traveling ahead four years and heading to Antarctica, where a group of American researchers encounter an extraterrestrial life form that assimilates, attacks, and imitates other organisms. And in the case of John Carpenter's extremely gory 1982 film, The Thing, it picks off the team that we meet one by one. And anchored by frequent Carpenter collaborator, the earnestly affable magnetic Kurt Russell in full movie star mode here. This is one disturbing thriller of paranoia, suspicion, and bleak fatalism. Punctuated by shocking midnight movie bursts of horror, gross out gags destined to delight genre audiences, especially watching this as a group, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, saw this thing alone and was terrified, oh. thinking, man, I'm glad I have Scott's phone number because if I'm still awake at two in the morning, I am calling him to talk me down. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> I definitely liked it, especially the performances and its plays on paranoia, which seemed very real. And the film hits differently in the middle of a pandemic. I thought that was very clever when it talked about that. I do love Kurt Russell and John Carpenter as well. But one thing I've discovered is when it comes to the visceral visual gags, I am a lightweight, as I mentioned, and will always take the mysterious over the explicit in storytelling. So in that regard, I do dig the fatalistic ending here and the way it's very ambiguous. Overall, it's a really cool retelling of director Christian Nyby's 1951 film The Thing from Another World based on John W. Campbell's 1938 novella Who Goes There? But enough from me. I would love to hear your thoughts. Oh, I would like to hear from you what you knew about this film prior to watching it. Did you know that it was a classic or did you know that it had like these moments of visceral gore that were going to upset you? I knew like people I know my whole life love this movie, but they did warn me that there was going to be, you know, like tentacles and things and like, you know, lizardy things that creep and slither and crawl. And that is not my thing at all. And so I would see clips of it uh, over the years on film specials. I'm like, I love Kurt Russell and I love John Carpenter, but I don't know. But, you know, I needed this push. I needed to check it out. 
I managed to get my way through it, but yeah, it scared the shit do you, out of don't, me. <laughs> don't, don't you feel like you like ran a little marathon though? You did accomplish yes, something. Yes, I did. I if can you are a little bit, uh, if you are a little <laughs> bit, um, I, mean, I don't know, I want to say it, I don't want to dismiss it. If you are not a horror, you know, uh, aficionado, and yeah. there's something that someone has told you is particularly scary and or gory, you have this kind of fun little nervousness in your belly yeah, like i used true. to get i used to get it when i was 14 and we rented texas chainsaw 3 i was like oh is this one gonna shock me is this one gonna freak me out is it gonna disturb me and you know that's part of the fun of it now what i would rather discuss with you is because yeah i mean the, the gore you could love it or you could hate it but what i i bet as you were watching it even though you were grossed out you were probably thinking wow rob botine is a genius <laughs> I do like um practical just, effects. Just the technical I, the technical yes, accomplishment of it. Yeah. Exactly. I love practical effects. I loved kind of thinking, oh, what did they use for this? And then I had just done an episode in August, I believe, on James Cameron. It was my 100th episode with Thomas Lafley. And so I learned all about like the KY jelly and how they did the thing for um aliens. And so it was kind of cool to have that knowledge watching the thing now because it, it made does me get, it curious. does allow you a little yeah. bit doesn't it allow you to watch a film kind of like a doctor looks at a body a little you're, bit you're, yeah you're a little <laughs> bit more analytical than you're just oh I don't like gore but oh <laughs> yeah no sorry no <laughs> it's always good to have that knowledge I'm glad I saw it now though and not like a few years ago just on my own without that sort of knowledge behind me. I'm also glad that I checked out the original before I saw this one. This one is definitely better than the original, but I yeah. do appreciate the ambiguity of the original as well. Yeah. I, I mean, both in both films that we've talked about, you know, 1956 is a long time ago. And a oh, lot yeah. of, a lot of things have changed about how humans interact with one another. Um, but even though both of those films seem a bit dated in, in some of the human interaction, they both work as creepy stories. And oh, I think, totally. I think you touched on one of the main things that I love about the thing. And we'll get into the gore in a second. But it's the sense of isolation, the paranoia, yes. the long shots of the empty hallways, the mm -hmm. shots of the characters kind of not trusting each other, the conversations. That was my the, favorite part. Yeah. Right. The, the conversations in which the mistrust is unspoken. Yeah. Um, and the actors are all great. Uh, I, I, it might have the best trained dog I've ever seen in a movie. Um, I know. Yes. And, and I think a lot of people react strongly to this movie because dogs do suffer. And that is yeah, a no-no to, no -no to a lot of movies, a lot of people. And I respect that. But to me, it's, you know, it's story. It's part of the story. And oh, yeah. uh, I think that the special effects. Now, here's where I get into my the politics about the gore. I, I think a lot of times gore is a lazy man's tool. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have interesting characters or you don't know how to set up suspense or you don't have good set pieces, another one thing you can do is shoot gore all over a girl or a guy and get an, uh, get a reaction from your audience. Ah, yep. look at all that blood. Yep. Um, I think this movie uses the gore like a boxer uses an uppercut. Uh, it is dry and quiet and, and dialogue based. And then you get these short, sharp shocks of gory visually unpleasant nastiness and mm -hmm. that that to me is a director tapping into a tool just like carpenter tapped into a tool in as michael walks down the steps in halloween it's just a different tool 
Yeah. Um, and and I I think that I would not want every horror movie to be this gory. I think that would get boring. Mm-hmm. But um, in this case, where it's an isolated location, they can't leave. And I think what Carpenter and Botine were going for is they're not dealing with a polar bear. They're not dealing with a mutated polar bear. They're dealing with something so alien and so disturbing, they don't know what to do. And the biology of it, I think, is just adds an extra layer that makes it scary because it's more real. Um, but on the other hand, if you're somebody who is just open-minded to horror but don't like gore, I could 100% see you just like not wanting to see this. It's like uh, it's like not wanting to go on the scariest roller coaster there is because <laughs> you know, like some people don't enjoy the scariest roller coaster. There yeah. is. they they enjoy like a B minus roller coaster, and God bless them. yeah no I appreciate it academically and everything and it was needed and I can also see this in um the time period like coming off of alien and then in the progression of gore in some of these like the fly we're going to get into and aliens like how they use it and how they use it effectively but I think my favorite aspect of this movie is definitely the paranoia especially because they are so isolated they're also thrown together there's this old Seinfeld joke I love about um, you know you don't have to be best friends with your co-workers it's basically just a bunch of people that happen to fill out the same job application as you and it's all these people that are there and maybe we're getting on each other's nerves a little bit anyway I mean because you're thrown together you're stuck there together uh, but then this sort of you know amps that up, cranks it up to a 10. And the other thing that I love about it is it's sort of like a horror version of an Agatha Christie novel. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Carpenter called it like, and then there were none, but you know, in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really clever because I was seeing the same thing. It's like, I mean, all horror movies, they pick people off one by one, but this is worse because like clue or any of these people in a house type of, situations you're looking at each other like you know is it you is it you where is this coming from is it coming from inside you know the call is coming from inside their bodies essentially and so yeah, well, i mean we'll get into this on the next yes. movie but, but but this really does tap into not just you know fear of being stalked and killed in a, in a dark facility but yeah. Being overtaken by a biological presence it, oh my god it taps yeah. into the fear of disease <laughs> unlike any I mean, you know, and I, I do think that I think the movie would be just as good if they had pulled back the gore 30 percent. I think it'd yeah. be just as good. But absolutely, I do. But I also think that having that biological viscera is intentional. It's not oh, just of course. Car- yeah, it's not just Carpenter going, <laughs> boy, is this gross? It's like it, there no, is, there's that's a part purpose. of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, there's a psychological logic behind the excessive gore. Absolutely. And I also think it's like you said after American Werewolf in London and after, uh, you know, Alien, effects and producers and effects creators were trying to, all right, what can we do next? We can't do, yeah. we, can't do, we can't do the Alien monster and we can't do American Werewolf in London, but what can we do? Yeah, I know. Let, that's a good let's point. let these young geniuses, you know, go yes. nuts with their little bio-horror story. <laughs> I know. Um, and I, I, I just love yeah. it. I love this movie so much. And I think part of the obsession for fans comes from the fact that it was trashed when it first came out and it didn't make a lot of money. I was reading that. That was crazy. Yes. That makes fans of any genre, but especially horror fans, very loyal. When, when, you know, you, a horror movie that you adore and you look back over the reviews from 82 and it's 
lot of it was just dismissing it as gross and vile without giving, I mean, okay, if you don't like the excessive gore, that's a fair criticism. But to say that that's all the film was, come on. It's a small mm-hmm. percentage of a movie that that is very scary, even if you cut all the gore. It's still scary. Yes. No, 100%. You really hit the nail on the head there. Yes. <laughs> now, the theory, and this is something that I've repeated many times, and a, a lot of old movie nerds will agree with this. The theory at the time is that The Thing and Blade Runner, which both came out the same week, The Thing and Blade Runner were not only steamrolled by E.T., which came out two weeks earlier. True. But it was psychologically steamrolled. People did. This is not what people wanted in sci-fi. 20 years later, when people look back over why did the thing in Blade Runner fail at the box office, they point to E.T. and they say that's what people wanted from sci-fi. People were in a sci-fi equals friendly mode. And if the thing and Blade Runner had come out a different year, they might have been better, bigger hits. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. That's true. I remember back in the 90s babysitting, I would watch all those stand-up specials and Comedy Central. I can't remember the comedian for the life of me, but there was a joke about, you know, like maybe we should be afraid of uh, what's going on in outer space. Like, didn't you see Alien? Oh no, everybody wants to talk about ET. And then what if you guys unleash some horror just because NASA wanted to say hi? And yeah. it's yeah, it's exactly true. Yeah. yeah. And I all, you know what? Just a tiny little sidebar. It's grown on me. Uh, I, <clears throat> the uh, semi-sequel slash remake from 2011. Didn't care for it. The one with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Didn't care for it when I first saw it. And it Ooh. has grown on me over the I years. I might have to see it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. not a bad film. It, okay. it infamously, at the last minute, the producers decided that they were going to digitally paint over most of the practical effects. And, oh, man. and that's a fact. So a lot of film, horror fans kind of took exception to that. And I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that nasty kind of fed into the overall reviews. But to those people who are angry about the digital effects and the thing, just give it a second shot. And I, uh, I or the thing 2011, I should say, uh, give it a second shot because plot wise and character wise, it's still pretty interesting and has some good scares. Sounds good. All right. Well, you heard Scott. We'll have to check that one out. Moving ahead four more years, it's time to be afraid, be very afraid, with David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of director Kurt Newman's 1958 film, The Fly, loosely based on George Langlon's 1957 short story centered on an eccentric scientist, perfectly played by Jeff Goldblum, who's kind of Gen X's Vincent Price. The film follows the single-minded visionaries and tireless pursuit to create a successful teleportation device that's safe enough for human use. Not willing to go the slow and cautious route, one evening he fires up one of his pods for himself. And in a peak of jealousy. I know, I love that. Yeah, The fulcrum of the movie is he's insecure about his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend. Ah, yes. come on! Seth Come on, man. He's yes. smarter than that, brother. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. He accidentally absorbs the genetic components of a housefly that had sneaked into the other telepod when he does that in a bit of jealousy and insecurity, as Scott mentioned. Seemingly fine, at least initially, quickly he develops the same sexual and sugar cravings of a tireless fly and eventually finds his exterior body shedding his human traits in favor of the bugs, 
leading to several cringeworthy, grotesque moments. An unorthodox telling of Beauty and the Beast, as his new journalist girlfriend, played by Gina Davis, tries to confront or comfort temper and protect Goldblum from the fly version of himself, the film finds Cronenberg back in his favorite body horror, sex and gender role exploration. And while I disliked, of course, as, as predictable as I am, how gross the film got at times, I really responded to it overall. And I thought it would make for some fascinating analysis as an allegory for not only disease in the HIV era, but also disability on the whole as well. Also watching it now, shortly after I revisited Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, you can see its impact that the film has had on filmmakers. So what are your thoughts on The Fly? I think it might be the best horror film of the entire decade. I think it is a... yeah. There are some things that no other genre can do. Mm-mm. You could make a drama about somebody wasting away in front of their new beloved girlfriend. Exactly. And it would play, it could play, it could, it could be a great film, but we've yeah. seen that film before. We've seen oh it on many, Every many, <laughs> we've seen it on ABC movie of the week. We've seen it on uh, during Oscar push where, you know, somebody young and lovely is dying and it's horrible and tragic and people like tear jerkers. This is that in horror and i think it is the best example of a doom tragic romance in a horror film i just love the fact that it it respects the genre it's not saying oh the drama or the romantic or the tragedy is more important and the horror is garnish this is a horror story but it's about humans it's about Mm -hmm. insecurity and jealousy and sad and and impetuousness and regret um, like you said, it, it, it could be about the HIV crisis. It could be about watching somebody wither away from cancer. Yeah. It's a, a heavy, dark movie, but it's very rewarding. I, I think it's it, it's one of the only horror movies I know that makes me cry. I'll tell you that. Yes. Um, and Gina Davis, I mean, Goldblum is amazing. He's always been amazing. I think this is Gina oh. Davis' best performance maybe ever. And that's saying something because she's amazing. Um, and I just think it's really interesting that the three high quality remakes that we've covered so far are all remakes of 50s movies that were based on short stories. <laughs> that is really interesting. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even uh, put that together. Now, I, I know your tastes to a degree. I know what you like. Um, and I could see you watching this movie, both weeping and hiding your eyes going, damn it. <laughs> a little gory. bit. Yeah. Gory, but also crying in between. The gross moments. Um, God, now, you nailed me. Yeah. What I, what I would like to ask you is, does it ever reach a point? And it doesn't for me, but I could see how it does. Does it ever reach a point where you're not a horror fan, but you're a grown woman who can see some made yeah. up gore and live through it? You know that. Yes. Does it ever reach a point where you're like, all right, you, you crossed the line. Like you, 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 you one? went, no, you went three say... degrees too far with the gore. No, no, no? Like... good. This one, no. The thing for me, yes. But this okay. one, definitely not. And I think it's because I'm watching it as somebody with a genetic disease who is disabled. So I'm watching it a little bit differently. And I'm seeing, I mean, I don't have that. That's, you know, it's like an allegory for this kind of thing. Body horror can go either way for me. And especially David Cronenberg and body horror can go either way for me. I have a lot of issues with the brood. But this movie really, it kind of hit me in a place where I'm like, well, fuck, yeah, I felt that. I mean, 
not that my fingernails are coming off or my like face or I'm not getting, you know, fly wings or anything. Right. Like and, that. and again, um, uh, but uh, yeah, like, like I said, this is a, a horror movie about these things. Yes. If it had been like a light comedy or a, a heavy drama, you wouldn't be able to get into the, the, the personal and the sometimes ugly details of what. No, disease. you need it. Yeah. yeah uh, you need those stakes. You need her rev- to discover these things. And I mean, aside from it also being a very effective romantic tragedy, it's it's also supposed to be kind of fun. <laughs> like it is it a is. Dark, yeah, darkly like, entertaining movie. Yeah. At the beginning, especially like I would say this has one of the most perfect opening 10 minutes, especially the horror movie. Like you don't always need that first kill, but this sets up exactly like his hubris and oh, Brundle and Andy, his... those two characters are set up so efficiently and so, so coolly in the yes. first 15 minutes that you buy them falling madly in love in the next act. You buy it. Uh, yeah. 90, 96 minutes long. It is the only film to win Cronenberg an Oscar for one of his films. Uh, it won Best Makeup. That's uh, for Chris Wallace, uh, who would go on to direct the sequel. But I am much more interested, you know, any horror geek is going to break out the same 10 points about the fly, that it's amazing, that it's audacious, that it's brave, that it, it, it dares to delve in, in 1986. Now, I believe that Cronenberg has gone on record on interviews saying straight out, this is not an intentional HIV parable. It, oh, no. is, yeah. it is a parable about living with someone who's dying. Mm-hmm. It, but that, you know, but the fact that it arrived at 86 at that point when AIDS was such a, a hot button topic, such a, well, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> the hot button issue in the news and people had like a lot of, that was panic, almost they every didn't inter- really know exactly that was what almost was. every interpretation. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I recently talked on the Michael Douglas episode with Sean Burns about um, how fatal attraction was seen as kind of an AIDS parable. And it's like, that's one reading of it. It's inescapable because of the period, but More you can of a see safe other things. Parable, I'd say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a lot going on with that. Um, you can see it either way. And it's just wrapped into the story. But those first, like you said, those 15 minutes, they're perfect. I think screenwriters working in the genre should really study that because it does kind of, I mean, it doesn't foreshadow with a wink. It isn't too uh, over the top or like, oh, well, that's coming back. Like a gun is pulled out, but you kind of know what this relationship is going to be what is going to be his downfall. And also just weirdly, like when he sat down at the piano and he, she started to back out, like, well, maybe I should leave. And then, well, now that you've seen it, you know, I can't let you leave. And there's a minute of, is this for real? Like what is going on? And later on, she's going to be like slightly scared of him, but also wanting to comfort him. And I just think like that opening sequence is amazing. It does have a lot of subtle foreshadowing character yeah. set up. Uh, credit also due to an actor that I knew nothing about prior to seeing this movie. But as Gina Davis's sleazy publisher slash expert. How good was he? How yes. great is John Getz in this movie? He is so oily. So good. Uh, and then at the last moment, there are moments of humanity for in that character where you're like, yep. oh, I thought he was just supposed to be a single pain, one note, evil yes. guy. And then at the end, towards his the end of his character, he actually has some moments of kindness and you're like, oh, all right, good. I like wrinkles. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. He becomes slightly heroic, even though he's a jerk. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it is- a really interesting. It's a three dimensional character, like a real full human being. 
And it would be so easy just to make him like the cheap villain or the other guy. Yeah. What is yeah. your take on um, what were the most excessive or uh, uh, cringy moments for you? Oh, well, definitely. You know, I mentioned the fingernails and the pus and that kind of stuff or the stuff coming out of his mouth. I mean, that was a little too much for me, but it worked for this film. You mentioned the makeup, Oscar. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, when I was reading about the movie, assumed that maybe Jeff Goldblum would be nominated for the film. Of course, horror movies don't usually get nominated. Uh, interestingly, though, this was um, released one month after Aliens came out. Uh, can yep. you imagine that summer? Like crazy. And Sigourney and, and, uh, got nominated. Yeah, yeah, and Sigourney did get nominated. I you, know. If, and, and we, as the horror geeks of Northeast Philadelphia in 1986, you could have heard me cheering when yeah. uh, Sigourney Weaver got nominated. But if Jeff Goldblum had also been nominated, it would have been just the icing Pandemonium. on the cake. Yes. <laughs> uh, both of them deserved to be nominated. It, mu it must have been a great year because Goldblum yeah. and Davis uh, obviously became a couple after this movie for a while. Um, yeah, I, I actually, this is bad. I didn't know they were married. Yeah. Uh, ever. It's like the marriage I forgot, I guess. Yeah. Or um, never and heard. Are there, like with the thing, there are moments where, the gore is there to make a point. And I remember there's a sequence in this movie that weirdly gave me nightmares. And it's a scene about a woman giving birth. Oh, yes. That was a little much. That was very Cronenberg to me. Like as soon I knew something just awful was going to come out of, of her like womb. Essentially, yeah. she was going to give birth to something. I'm like, and we oh, all okay, know this... what baby flies look like, everybody. Uh, yeah. And I'm telling you, <laughs> even if it was Cronenberg, if that was made today. Woo. They would not show it like that. I don't know no. how they would exhibit it, but it would not be it would not be shown clear as day because it's just a bit. Oh, the MPAA would have a field day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, 100 percent. You mentioned Gina Davis. It would have been really cool if she got nominated. Of course, she got her Oscar two years later for The Accidental Tourist, which I love. She's just always so good. And I think she's one of those people we don't appreciate enough. Oh, hell yeah. You remind yeah. me of Gina Davis a little. Oh, you're so funny. <laughs> Just because we're tall, I guess. No. <laughs> oh, are you tall? I know we've never met in person. Oh, oh I, I'm always making jokes about that. Like not being able to fit. But yeah, no, I love that about Gina Davis. When I see her, I'm like tall power. Yes. Oh, she's such a, a comforting, warm presence in just about everything. Uh, oh, I love yeah. her. I remember seeing her in Fletch and going, who's that? Yeah. Uh, wasn't she great in that? Yeah. yeah. It was one of her first movies or maybe her first movie. And, and mm -hmm. she's just somebody you just love to see. And uh, yeah. she's wonderful in this. And it's a hard role. It's like with a lesser actor, you just have, okay, uh, look, uh, look horrified and cry again. Yeah. But like she has levels at first, she's tentative and then she's disturbed and then she's committed and then she's fuck this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see her go through all the range of emotions, as you would. And yeah. also just watching this again with the disability angle as, a you know, somebody who's had caretakers and her parents and friends or, you know, over the years, different things. I was watching that and totally understanding like, oh, man, you know, you don't understand how uh, when you're in the moment and you're going through like right after surgery, it's you're pretty much like the focus is on me, people. And then as you come out of it, you're like, boy, I could never have gotten through that without my, you know, family, loved ones. And so when you watch her again, you just want to cry. It's very Beauty and the Beast. And she is amazing. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, some people would uh, hear this conversation about this movie and think, well, that sounds heavy and depressing. Why would I want to watch that? 
Yeah, not at all. It is, it's a roller coaster. I mean, please, there is a scene involving like arm wrestling. Come on. It's very 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it also gets into, I think it is an interesting movie if you are maybe, um, if you had maybe gotten yourself out of a t- toxic relationship, not necessarily abusive, but maybe. Oh, just, that's you know, a great read. Yeah. Unhealth, unhealthy that she loves him, but obviously he's bad for her. In every, in <laughs> every conceivable, angel. Yeah. Right. So uh, it just, it, it says a lot about relationships through a form that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to like human relationships. It is an absurd story. The guy who mm-hmm. combines himself with the DNA of a fly and slowly starts turning into a fly on paper. It's ridiculous, but it's just a masterfully written and, and shot and made. I love this movie. I, I'm really glad that you liked it. Um, yeah. yeah. This one was light years better than the original. The original, yeah, I mean, now, it's I was going to say, campy, you the know. original is he immediately turns into Joe Flyhead. And yes, I, I want to just say <laughs> that in the, in the course of adapting, I think it was Charles Pogue who uh, yeah, wrote Charles a version. Yeah. Yeah. And David Cronenberg who wrote, who wrote the adaptation. Um, I love the idea that, you know, we're going to adapt this story. What's a good way to adapt it? Well, one good way is he doesn't instantly turn into a fly. It happens no, over the course of a month. You need to know who he is. Right. And that, that even if they added nothing else, which they did, they added a lot more, but even if they added nothing else, that gradual wrinkle is what makes this movie so interesting because you're interested not only in the progression of their relationship, but you're interested in the progression of his disease. You're, you know, you're, you want to know where it's going. Yes. 100%. That's a really good observation. Well, switching gears from body horror to blobby body killer, we have director Chuck Russell's 1988 version of the blob, which is a remake of the classic 1958 film of the same name by Irvin Yeworth. Mm-hmm. Not a housefly or plant source of horror, but an acidic, pliable, amoeba-like organism. This pinkish red blob crashes down to Earth in a military satellite and devours, dissolves, and absorbs anything it encounters as it continues to grow, dominating and nearly destroying an entire California town in its process. First discovered by a group of high school students who try to help an elderly transient man who is the weird slime stuck to his hand as the night wears on and it begins to pick off others. Parents and authorities are hesitant to believe the teenagers, Brian and Meg's version of events, an exciting fast paced horror movie that while a bomb when it first opened and not of course, as good as the original in my eyes, it's still very entertaining, very fun though. It's set in the contemporary eighties. There's something about this movie, especially it's teen characters played by Kevin Dillon, Sean Smith, Donovan Leach and others and at times the old fashioned situations that make it feel like it tried to honor the time period of the original blob in spirit, or at least that was my take. So how about you, Scott? Are you a fan of this blob? Oh yeah. I, I, I love the concept. I love the original, uh, back mm-hmm. when I was a kid, like most kids of Gen X, you would Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you'd go downstairs and on the UHF channel 17, 29, 48, you would find, either kung fu movies or film noir or if you were lucky something like invasion of the saucer man or 1958's the blob and the blob gave me one moment that was a formative moment and you touched on it in your synopsis and it's when 
in the original, when the blob is the old man has it on the stick and he's playing with it. And then the, the score gives a great sting and the blob grabs his hand. <laughs> it scared Jen. I that know. Moment, I can't imagine. That moment scared me as a, what, eight, seven, eight, 10, 12 year old. I was going to ask how old you were. Yes. Uh, and it's that it's just and that to me, that's like a beautiful, healthy scare. Yeah, because I'm not going to have nightmares and I'm not going to be traumatized by this, but it's fun scare. And yes, I think the blob 58. Yeah, I think the blob 58. And I do. As I got older, I love the whole. We can't trust the teenagers, but they're right. You should. In this case, yes. listen, I love that <laughs> angle. I love that theme. Um, and I just think it's a lot of fun. And it's one of those fun horror movies where you're like, you can put your you, you don't mind. I'll put myself in the movie. You don't want to put yourself in the fly. But if no. you're in the blob, you're like, okay, what would I do? How would I yeah. get away? How would I stay safe? You know, and it's one of those put yourself in the movie. And I love the remake uh, for the same reasons that you just said. I think it has um, a real 50s uh, a throwback vibe, uh, mm-hmm. a fun tongue in cheek. This is a remake of a beloved fun horror movie, and we're not going to take it too seriously. But it also adds the wrinkle of the military conspiracy uh, and, and some gore slash just special effects that you could just see Chuck Russell, who's a genre lover. You could just see him going, Oh wow. How could I update the blob and like the kills down the sink? And there's some, the blob effects. I mean, sometimes less is more. And I do love the original, but there's something about the adaptation ideas that the, the breadcrumbs that they, that Darabont and uh, Chuck Russell brought to the remake that I, I just love. And it just speaks to what I like about remakes when they're good is Nobody could say that this movie doesn't honor the original. It does, but it's also its own thing. Mm-hmm. That's the key. It has to honor the original in some way, and it has to be its own thing. And all of the remakes that we've covered so far have done that. Yeah. So, yeah, you like the original better. I think I did. But... I bet you, but I could see what you love about the 50s one is like the eye-popping Technicolor and yes. the energy and the I costumes. I color and film. But yeah. this is such a blast, though. And it was kind of funny while I was watching it. I was like, you know, this is a little American graffiti-ish. And then you have Candy Clark. And I loved mm-hmm. that. Yes, Darabont, uh, such a good screenwriter. The teenagers, I love movies where, you know, the authorities or people are trying to say, you know, that didn't happen. Or, oh, sure, honey, you know, why don't you go to bed and it'll be fine in the morning. And they have to kind of take it upon themselves to solve the problem. They're sort of like the gaslit noirs of the 40s. And I love that. But yeah, I thought this was a lot of fun. There were some really great sequences that were fun scares, like when they are, um, was it in a sewer? I can't fully remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, You know what I think is great is the, uh, the whole sequence in the kitchen. And I absolutely love, I just could see when Russell or Darabont came up with this set piece. Uh, of the blob absorbing a woman inside of a phone booth so that like now she's still alive it's it's fun and it's creepy (laughs) it's so scary and it kind of reminded me of that scene in the birds you know when she she runs to the phone booth and it's like you know things are hitting the phone booth and you're like you're not safe in that phone booth yes so that was really cool yeah but I just I love the teenager characters the actors were really good especially Kevin Dillon I thought was excellent and I also loved uh, Shawnee Smith as well. Shawnee Smith, everybody knows her from the Saw series. But yeah, she's been a genre stalwart for years. I love Jeffrey DeMunn. 
uh, as the sheriff. And, oh, and yes. It's funny, uh, it's funny Dar- like, or young Darabont co-wrote this. And then years later, Jeffrey DeMunn would be in just about every Frank Darabont production from Walking Dead to Shawshank to he's in he's in everything. Uh, Darabont has this stable of like four or five actors that he always uses. And uh, Jeffrey DeMunn is a great actor. I, and I do kind of like that. You could see like if somebody were to say update the blob for the 80s, of course, you're going to include the military complex somehow. Of course, yes, <laughs> of course, it's something that we self-created. Uh, and, and, and it's now coming back to bite us in the ass. That was the message that was prevalent throughout like eco horror of the late 70s and early 80s. I know. And, and I love that. I think it's a fun permutation. I think it's a fun continuation. Uh, and you could almost, in a way, the remake almost kind of plays like a sequel if you wanted to. You know, it could. Yeah. Or it's the anti-Red Dawn, essentially. Or, or yeah. like- <laughs> and, and you could also avoid the little scene 1972's original sequel called Beware the Blob. Directed by I was Larry going Hatton. to ask you about that. It is yeah. bad. It is is bad. it bad? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fun bad. But I mean, if you want to complete the whole Blob collection, it's only three movies. So. <laughs> the Blob franchise. Yes. Yeah. And I would, I mean, you know me, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. And I, I would love to write some remakes of horror films that I love. Fade to Black, Evil Speak. The blob. This if to me would be so. Scott, I've, God, I've read I would have so, how about, how about, I got so many set pieces in my head. How about kids in a treehouse and the blob is slowly rising and we keep cutting back <laughs> to that. You know, just that. You know that that I kind of stole from uh, Attack the Block. But I, I think the blob is fun, and I think part of the reason it has such a special place in my heart, and and the reason that it holds a lot of nostalgia, either version, is because the kids are the heroes. Yes, that's one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. It also kind of felt or reminded me in a weird way of like a Twilight Zone episode. And I loved that. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, the blob effects in the remake? You know, I, I think less is more might have been good in some scenes. It was a little much to see like, you know, the flash and stuff like that. That was a little... It seemed, like, yeah. it seemed like they had in 1986 some formative digital effects, some very formative. And they're like, look, we have the ability to like yeah. show off the body flying through the goo. So why, don't we, <laughs> why don't we do it? And yeah, I think that adds a little more of like a, a dark comic book vibe to it. I, yes, I think they're both. True. I wouldn't I don't know if I would call this better than the original, but. I think they're both about the, I would say, because because the other ones we've covered, Fly the Thing and Body Snatchers, I much like the remakes, much more. This one, I'd say they're about 50-50. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think just like the, uh, especially Invasion of the Body Snatchers, people should check out the original for sure, because these are two different ways of telling the same story. But they do they don't ignore their predecessors. They don't just try to pretend that they didn't exist. And I love yeah, that. And they do it. it in some clever ways. I still love yeah. that little Kevin McCarthy cameo in the, in the body snatchers. Reading, yes. As if to imply that he's been uh, maybe running for 18 years telling people, listen to me. Yes. Trust <laughs> me. I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the blob is not, I mean, the, he's the been other on films speed that, we, that whole time. Yeah. The other films <laughs> that we've covered kind of have, you know, some meat. This, not so much. There's no meat, really. It's mainly just chase, chase, fall down. Somebody gets eaten and then cold saves the day. It's yes. it's pure. It's pure popcorn. There's not, not a lot of subtext here, but I, I like both both versions quite a bit. 
Definitely. Well, next up, we have to take a momentary segue so I can thank Scott for choosing Dawn of the Dead, because I was startled and amazed to find that um, the original George A. Romero 1978 film is easily one of the best new to me first watches I saw all year. I dug how it's about a pandemic essentially of our own making and driven by racism, toxic masculinity, and more. And the whole damn thing not only plays out in a shopping mall, but spoiler alert, what kills most people in the end isn't just zombies, but idiot men with guns, essentially American militias. That film actually works better today, I think, than I believe anyone associated with it would have believed back when they were making it in the post-Watergate and Nam era. And I'm afraid that while the 2004 film directed by Zack Snyder and written by James Gunn might be entertaining and it is fun. And I love the cast, including Sarah Pauly, Ving Rhames, Jake Weber, Ty Burrell, and Mackay Pfeiffer. Overall, it's missing that sly, smart allegory and a true connection to most of its characters, which made me enjoy it, but also largely keep it at an arm's length. Of course, including some jokes and plays on the original, as well as cameos by Scott Reniger, Tom Savini, and Ken Forey. That helps as well. And Polly, Rames, and Weber in particular are excellent. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, like the first four we've covered, I would probably take the remake over the original. Okay. Uh, in this case, I would take the original over the remake. But having said that, Dawn of the Dead is one of the best horror films ever made. And if you can attack that movie and make a remake this good, even That's if it's, true. I think you deserve a lot of credit because yeah. I, I don't think you were going to eclipse the social commentary or the no. consumerism of the original. And I think that Gunn and, and Snyder probably wisely decided, you know what? Not only do those points not really ring true as much anymore, the consumerism, uh, you know, because by this point, malls were kind of on their way out. So you could have infused your own kind of consumerism satire in there, but it just seems like they said Romero already did his subtext perfectly. Let's leave that there and just make kind of 90% escapism, 90% mm. just fun action horror. Uh, and I don't disagree with you that the characters are not quite as well drawn, but I do love Sarah Polly. Yes. They, they're smart by anchoring the movie with her at the beginning. And Jen, I watched this last week and I've always said this over and over. There's a shot in this movie where the zombies are attacking her in a bathroom and it's an overhead shot and she falls backwards into a bathtub. And that stunt How woman, the hell did they? Yes. How did they do that? That stunt person hit her head so fucking hard. I cannot yes. fathom how that wasn't digitally uh, tweaked with or something. It's just an amazing stunt. And I've said this to Gunn too. It, it blows my mind every time I see it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that this movie has as much on its mind as the original, but yeah. I think that's by design. I don't think it's trying to be cerebral and failing. I think it's trying to just be mostly visceral fun. I agree with you. I think watching it now, watching both of these now, I kind of, because of everything going on in the world, the original just was like so prescient and I loved that. But this is quite a lot of fun. And interestingly, when I was reading about the movie, I found a quote from the co-producer, Eric Newman. And Scott, he cited Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing, and The Fly as huh. being big influences on this remake. 
And he said, um, you know, what they wanted to set out to do is just make great movies that add rather than diminish to the original films. And I think, you know, I don't know if it adds anything, but it is a fun version of it. And, you know, there's a great cast in this thing. I almost thought there were too many characters and I wasn't really feeling a few of them. I mean, I don't really know who a few of those people are. It's like, oh, okay, she's just the slutty girl or he's just the jerk or that kind of thing. But, you know, it's a good two hours when you're watching it. It's entertaining for sure. As you say that, I'm looking at the cast list on Wikipedia and it has Kim Poirier as as Monica, a conspicuously sexy woman. <laughs> like, that's, yes. her, that's her character trait. Um, yeah. I, and again, I, I walked into the Dawn of the Dead remake expecting it to be efficient, badass, gory, actiony fun. I did mm. not expect I did not either expect or want James Gunn and Zack Snyder to maybe attack the exact same. Oh, no. But now that you have mentioned it, I think. Dawn of the Dead, both of them, 78 and 2004, might act as a really interesting bookend to mall culture in general. Because yeah. while, while malls are still around, of course, they're on the decline, uh, obviously, for various reasons. People have much more efficient ways to shop. And given the pandemic, it's much easier to stay out of public places, giant hallways. But mall culture was a huge impactful thing for 40 years and i think mm -hmm. that you know you a smarter person than me could write an article saying that dawn of the dead both of them kind of bookend the the beginning and the end of mall culture <laughs> the other interesting thing about both of these films is that one came after nom um so many of these zombie movies came out after 9 11 and when we went into those two never-ending wars um, basically, you know, you have this 28 days later, you have I am legend, eventually world war Z, just a Walking bunch of these man. movies. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, you know, obviously like, what is that about zombie movies? Uh, do, you know, might be interesting about, uh, brain dead and there's gotta be some great academic writing out there. Oh yeah. I think yeah. much, again, much smarter people than me have written about this. And I, I think when, culture at large goes through a traumatic moment be it 9-11 yes. or the 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 assassination of martin luther king or jfk or the even the challenger disaster uh oh my god uh, yeah anything anything that is tragic and unites us in its tragedy i think will so often show ripples in things we're afraid of i.e horror films that get written mm -hmm. and produced and i think the zombie metaphor is our safe way of attacking the end of the world Yes, and the insecurity like, of what's right, like you and I can sit here and talk about zombie movies all night. And the subtext is we're afraid of the end of humanity, but we're sure. not going to sit here and talk about the day after and when the wind blows. Those are <laughs> heavy, no. heavy movies about yeah. like nuclear war. So I think zombie attacks, zombie invasions are our safe way of discussing the thing that scares us the most. And I think that's the brilliant thing in the genre is, you know, just like what we were talking about with the fly all of these fears and, you know, ideas are wrapped into these films, but they do it in an entertaining way. So you can just watch these movies mindlessly and enjoy them. But also you can get that, hey, they're also commenting on society on the whole, which is a really cool thing about the genre. And I think sometimes when, you know, um, academic or film snob people are like, well, I don't do horror. It's like, maybe you don't understand what horror actually does for film and for the conversation and for sublimating these fears in art. And I think that's a cool thing. 
well said. I think that horror is in a lot of times, uh, in most cases, uh, cathartic. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, being able to, to look at a version of your fears and, and enjoy it in a hundred minutes, even if it's very dark and then turn it off and go in the sunlight or pick up a baby or play with your dog. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I think that kind of stuff is, is valuable. I mean, yeah, you survived I, it. Yes. I also, I mean, there's also the very simplistic aspect of a horror movie is like a roller coaster, you know, yes. like, you, you know, it's safe, but you want to be scared for 90 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but like you said, I, uh, the best horror films work on both levels. They have something yeah. interesting to say about society or culture, and they're just plain old fun. Uh, and while I don't think Dawn of the Dead 04 is super deep, I think no. it's a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. I was going to ask you about the Romeros and any of the other, um, I can't remember if uh, James Gunn or somebody made a, a follow-up to this one, any of the other of the dead series which ones should i check out i'm pretty sure i saw night of the living dead when i was a teenager but that's like the only one well of course night of living dead any horror fan you you have to have seen it by now Uh, i mean it's public domain you have virtually no excuse for not having (laughs) seen it you can you could watch it anywhere you Mm -hmm. you could you could release a version of that movie on your own um then there's of course dawn of the dead which is you know brilliant then there's day of the dead from 85 which kind of is even bleaker than Dawn and takes target at the military, uh, how the military response would be to a long invasion. And it's very, oh, wow. yeah, it's brutal. It's, it's, it's good. I didn't care for it when I was younger, but as I got older, I realized there's more to this than I thought. Uh, then of course he came back in 05, Dennis Hopper in land of the dead, which I remember liking, but thinking it was kind of slight and I would be happy to give that one another look. Um, yeah. And then he did two Indies D- diary and survival of the dead which okay. are both, you know, uh, interesting enough because they're Romero fooling around in the genre he created, but neither of them are, you know, quite as impactful as the original series. Sounds good. I just I just love this topic uh, because, yeah, okay, let's say bad or even medium remakes outnumber the good ones five or seven to one. Mm-hmm. That's me. That's me being kind. Okay. A lot of times, like uh, I always use the remake of The Fog as an example. <laughs> the Fog is a Carpenter film that I love. And if you had said to me, good writers and a good director are attacking this remake because they love the original and why not refurbish it for a new audience? Mm-hmm. I'm totally cool with that. Yes. But what, what happens is when the really lazy filmmakers go, holy crap, remakes are super hot right now. And they buy up the rights to three old horror movies. And now you've poisoned the well because somebody could have made a decent remake of The Fog. And instead you have this laughable one that like now nobody wants to touch it. And it bothers me because I could have written a good remake of The Fog. Yeah, not the CW shit that they put out. Oh, exactly. (laughs) And And you know what, Jen, I am charitable, man. I am not. I am not chip on my shoulder. I love this movie. So therefore the remake better blow me away in five minutes or I'm going to. No, I am very. All right. I'm like, I'm like watching a kid learning to ride a bike when I watch a remake. I'm like, yeah, you got it. Oh yeah. Not bad. Oh, you added your, Oh no. Now you're, Oh, you fell over. You know, yeah. like that's, that's me watching a horror remake. I, I'm always rooting for it, but when it gets lazy and generic, it just feels like product instead of yeah. these all feel like, you know, all five of these feel like real movies in every way. They don't feel like somebody said, Oh, let's bang this out because the original is popular. Mm-hmm. And that's no, the difference. That's all so of these, true. all five of these were made by people who loved the original and wanted to make their own good movie. This was not made by committee or CW, like you said. 
Yeah, no, I love this topic too. And I know that's all we had time for today in terms of uh, five films, but there are so many more we could have covered and who knows, we still might in a part two, we'll have Scott back. Next October. You betcha. But since it is the spooky season right now, are there any other horror remakes you'd like to just shout out that people should check out? The Crazies. The Crazies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did see that. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah, that one is uh, the Last House on the Left remake, except for the last 30 seconds is a, is a good remake. Okay. Um, I know I'm going to miss, I'm going to forget several. Oh, Let Me In, which is a, okay. a remake, of course. Oh, of yeah, that movie. was a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but but the, the, hard, the bad remakes are so bad that they're easy to yell about when another horror remake is announced. You That's know what I mean? True. Like they you know, overshadow. Like, yeah. Uh, I like I, I detested the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Just hated it because mm-hmm. not only did it just follow in the same blueprint, but it actually aped like individual scare scenes. Like, why would you reshoot the, the claw coming out of Nancy's bathtub? Why would you reshoot the shot of him coming through the wall, like the rubber wall? Yeah, like, it's like Van Sant and Psycho, which is yeah. a good one, but it's like, why? Why? <laughs> it's uh, technically impressive, but what's yes, the point? What like, is I don't, the point? Yeah. I don't, you know, like I was interested to see it and it was interesting for 98 yeah. minutes, but no, I don't want to see that. I want to see you use Freddy Krueger, uh, 25% honoring the original that and, and not uh, uh, betraying the fans. And then 75% should be your own story. Otherwise, what's the point? You're just, yes. it's not even, a, it, it's a literal translation. It's not a remake. It's not an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like, I didn't care for Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, but that was a remake. He had his own hooks. He had his own ideas. So, you know, respect to him for that. Yeah. Oh, the no. ring. You know, so there's Ooh, two there, the ring. Yeah. Yes. There's two types of remakes in my mind. There's, you know, it's splitting hairs here, but there's classic American films that get remade 30 years later. And then there's hot import films that get remade within 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the ring was hot. Let's remake that. Let the right one in was hot. Let's remake <laughs> the grudge. That. Yeah. The grudge was hot. Let's remake that. You know, uh, and to their credit, all three of those remakes are good films. I don't yeah. think any of them are better than their originals, but they're, well, the ring might be actually, but I think know, the ring is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Evil dead. There's a good remake. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a movie that horror fans are very protective of. Um, Poltergeist, bad remake, pet cemetery, yeah. half decent remake. Um, you know, there's just so many of them. Uh, yeah. Texas chainsaw massacre, the platinum dunes remake. Against all my judgment, I like that movie. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Glossy and, and cut. And the original looks like a gruesome documentary and is one of the scariest films I've ever seen. But the remake is shot like a music video, a dark music video, and yet I still like it. It's it's weird. Uh, bad remake, The Haunting, the Jan de Bont one from 99, because the original mm. is so great. And this, the 99. Oh, that's so true, yeah. The, the, the original is so good. And, and the, the the remake seems like we just discovered digital animation and we're going to put it in every scene. Mm-hmm. And it, it really does play like a, an effect show reel more than, um, more than a full horror movie. Uh, yeah. oh, another really good one that we'll cover next year. If you like Jen. Sure. Lee one L's remake of the invisible man. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we also mentioned on Twitter, like the mummy. So we should write these down. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, uh, My bloody Valentine. Decent remake. Uh, Hills okay. have eyes. Hills Have Eyes is a remake of a Wes Craven, and uh, that I love the original, and that's a damn good remake. Uh, very gruesome, very creepy. Dark Water, 
a very good remake. Of a Ooh, that Horror. was a really good one with Jennifer yeah. Connelly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. really uh, good. I might lose some fan, some horror geeks here, but the Suspiria remake on Prime is great. It's great. And I don't care if you love Argento, I do too. But it's a really interesting remake. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we could do that for hours. Cat People, uh, Stepfather, <laughs> The Omen, The Amityville, The High, The Eye. You could just go for days and days. Black Christmas, uh, Slumber Party Massacre, House of Wax, The Hitcher, uh, Sorority Row. <laughs> like these are, I mean, wow. like. Yeah. yeah, there's so many. <laughs> yep, yep. This is our new series, basically. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'm happy to come back anytime. Yeah for October and we'll have you back another time for any other topic you want to do. Cause you're also a comedy guy. So we got to bring you back for one of those too. Uh, anytime, Jen, I'm, I'm happy. Anytime you need me, I'm there. Oh, thank you so much. This was a true pleasure. I want to thank you for your time. And I had just the best time talking to you. Uh, as always, Jen, you and I, uh, I could talk movies with you all day and all night. And uh, I'm really glad that I introduced you to, especially Dawn yes. of the Dead 78. I'm glad that I helped introduce you to a lot of these movies. You would have seen them eventually, but I helped you introduce them quicker. And I'm truly happy that you love Dawn of the Dead uh, 78 and The Fly 86 in particular. Yeah, I liked all of them, but those were the two that I really loved. And now I want to check out a few more of the uh, Dead series and a few other ones you mentioned. So, yes, everyone listen with a notebook or it's a little late. You might have to listen to it again. Get your notebook and start taking notes when Scott starts talking. But thank you so much, Scott. This was a ball. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.